I have a pretty tight spiritual practice, so I try to stay as out of my mind as much as possible. I find whenever I'm not too in my head about things, then I get ideas. It sounds counterproductive because usually ideas come from your thoughts, but for me it's the opposite. Welcome to the Idea Generation Podcast, a show about creative entrepreneurship. My name is Noah Callahan-Bever, and each week I'll be speaking with some of the most innovative ideators in culture and trying to figure out how they make their creative decisions. This podcast is brought to you by the good people at Shopify. Feeling that entrepreneurial itch? Turn your passion into a business with Shopify. They've got everything you need to start, run, or grow your business. Check out shopify.com idea to learn more. Melanie Asani was born into creativity. Her parents were passionate about painting and music, but they never explored their interests professionally. Work always came first. So Asani followed in their footsteps and pursued a stable career in law, keeping her creative pursuits in the background. But after a little real-world experience soured Asani's taste for the law, a confidant gave her the confidence to pivot towards her passion, and Asani started her journey as a designer. My dad passed away when I was 10. You know, he was a civil engineer, but he was an artist. Like, he painted, he was in a band when he was younger. He did a a lot of different types of creative things, but never professionally. And it was the same for my mom. Like, she was also a painter, but she had never made money off of her art. She was also often the smartest person in the room or most resourceful, but she was always taking a back seat to my dad when he was alive, or my uncles, or somebody. And so what I ended up doing is doing everything she didn't do. So it was like the opposite. (laughs) So that's kind of how it informed. I think I just didn't want to be in the same situation where she was in. Part of it was survival. You know, my dad passed, and then she, of course, like she was an incredible provider. She went to cosmetology school right after my dad died and she became a hairstylist and supported us completely, which was incredible, but um, she never had anything that was her own. It It was a very different system. It was like kind of a cultural system that I didn't want to rely on. So I think I knew it on some level when I was younger, but in hindsight, I could articulate it much better. She was actually incredibly supportive of me until I was in college. And after college, I was supposed to go to law school and they were, you know, they were thrilled. (laughs) And I decided not to go to law school. I dropped out maybe like a week after I had gotten in. And then I think she started to really focus on me getting married like that became but some of my family and her focus it was like oh we don't know what she's doing she's going off the rails this this is going to affect her eligibility or something I don't know what they thought but then everything started to become really difficult because I was breaking trail with whatever they thought was you know Did they eventually come around? Yeah, totally. Yeah, (laughs) I mean, at some point, my mom was working for me. (laughs) Wow, that's an amazing moment. Yeah, it took a while, but yeah, now she's, you know, so proud of me. She's my number one fan. In high school, you worked in the mall Mm -hmm. doing retail. What are the lasting things that you took away from that? 
Well, I actually hated retail. I really hated working in the mall. You know, you're on your feet for hours, <laughs> and I, I was never a salesperson, but I liked fashion, and I think more than anything, I liked the community in the mall because I knew people that worked at all the stores, and, you know, my friends, I'd get my friends' jobs, or we would work together. So it was sort of more of a social thing than it really was anything else. But, um, you know, obviously I, I paid attention to the trends and I was really good at merchandising. And I, I just kind of did things that I thought everybody was good at, but I didn't realize until later not everybody's good at. That whole era was really my rebellious era. I was stealing a lot, which was horrible. But I really learned a lot about myself then in that way because I think I had a lot of anger that I hadn't figured out how to process in a healthy way. And so stealing clothes was like my thing. There was like a community of us at school that would do it. We would like trade and sell or keep. Or, um, so I learned a lot through doing bad things but in good ways. Was there a specific moment of inflection where you were like, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> yeah. Basically, I had finished with the mall. This was way later. And I was starting my creative journey, and I was making jewelry, and I was laser cutting everything out of plexiglass. And plexiglass comes in these big, like, eight-foot sheets. And you buy a sheet, you only get one color. And an earring, you know, like, you want to use multiple colors. And so I went to this place in the valley, which is where I grew up, and a good friend of mine was working there. And he was like, what are you doing here? And I told him, and he was like, give me 50 bucks and I'll, I'll put as many colors as you want in your car. And I was like, really? I was like, okay. <laughs> so I gave him 50 bucks, I rolled my car around to the side and he put in like six or seven sheets into my car. And I drove home and it was the first time in my life where I had ever had a conscience about it. Like I had clearly stolen something, even though I was trying to tell myself it wasn't stealing, but I knew it was stealing. And at this point I just learned how to meditate and I had processed through a lot of the stuff that I had been through when I was younger. So I called this woman who was sort of like my spiritual godmother and I talked it through with her and um, I was like, oh, I'm not there anymore. Like, I can't, I can't even be there even if I wanted to be. So I, that night I drove back and I like took all the sheets out and left them in front of the plastic spot. And I was like, I can't do that anymore. What was it that had drawn you to the law? Um, really it was justice. Even when I would steal, it was like us against the man, you know, it was like against corporations, against whatever. I was always the one in my family that like stood up against racism or sexism. Like, I think I noticed things like that from a very young age. I mean, even with my mom taking a back seat all the time, I was like, what, what is this? You know? And uh, I felt really strongly about it. And so the, given the environment that I grew up in, I didn't think that you could advocate for something like that outside of the law. You know, I didn't know that there was other ways that you could do it. I just thought justice law is the only thing. So 
And especially in a Persian household, it's like you're going to become a doctor, a lawyer, a pharmacist. You know, it's like not very many options that you're sort of given agency towards. So I was always like, I'm going to be a lawyer. I'm going to fight for women's rights and human rights and kind of be a voice to the voiceless. And what ultimately derailed that? I got an internship at, on Capitol Hill and I worked there for a while and it was during 9-11, which was pretty intense. And then I um, worked at a private law firm and then I did a human rights firm and then I, I like talked to one of the human rights lawyers that I admired the most. I had followed his work for a long time and he kind of took me under his wing and I was just so disenchanted with the entire thing, the system. I was like, I don't know how I'm going to make a change or do anything within this system. And then the culture of it, everything about it just sort of was kind of a little bit daunting. I was like, I love the idea of this, but I don't know how I'm going to wake up every day for the rest of my life and do this. It's going to kill me. I found myself doing more creative things on the side as an outlet. I, I didn't realize that I could do creative things full time, but I realized I had to figure it out. Like I had to find whatever it was that I would be excited about getting up every morning to do. After her breakthrough at a Baha'i spiritual conference, Asani dove headfirst into the design world via night classes and internships to build her foundational subject knowledge. Eventually, she began to make and sell her first products, women's high heels, and along the way, she learned fast and she learned hard. For example, after a fabrication snafu, Asani was forced to relocate to China for the better part of a year in order to oversee the production of her line. But Asani was unfazed by the inconvenience. She was starting to get her ideas out of her head and get them into the real world. I'm a Baha'i, it's my spiritual practice, and we'd have these like big Baha'i youth conferences all the time, and there were never any cool t-shirts. <laughs> and so I was like, why hasn't anybody made a cool Baha'i t-shirt? And you know, Baha'is are all about like oneness of mankind. And so we have these cool one planet, one people please t-shirts or different kinds of things, but they were all made in the 60s and were kind of dated. So I designed um, a line of shirts and like took them to a conference and they just blew out, like people lost their minds. And I was like, wow, that's, that was cool. And to me, it was like a service project. I was like, oh, I'm just doing this for my community, but I so loved doing it um, that it, that that was the first thing that kind of like sparked. I was depressed for a while. Um, I went through a long process of trying to figure things out, and I finally ended up speaking to this woman who is sort of like an intuitive, and she sees you, for lack of a better word. And it was the first time I really felt like somebody saw me. And she was like, you're really gifted with product design. And I was like, what? what's product design? Like, I didn't even know what it was. And she was like, do some research. What do you think sort of gave her that feeling? She like reads your cells. I got off the phone. I was like, this bitch is crazy. But then everything she said was so true. It was just somebody had said it out loud. It was things that 
about me that I would think that nobody had said out loud. I didn't give her anything for her to say that. She just sort of shared that. But she did tell me where I got it from. She said that, you know, you are really practical, which you get from your dad, and you're really creative, which you get from your mom, and the combination of those two things, you would be really good with products. And so I was like, okay. After a while, I did listen to what she said, and I researched product design. And I was like, oh, the number one school in the country is in Pasadena. My first step was signing up for classes. I just started taking night classes. I didn't realize that car design was like the first part of product design. So the first night I went to class, my whole mind was blown because it was like all these things that I was naturally drawn towards that I looked at and analyzed and thought about anyway were sort of being presented in a class. And I was like, I already kind of know this stuff. I just don't know how to draw, like I don't have any of the technical skills. So that's where I started. I just started um, figuring out how to gain technical skills because to me drawing was technical, it wasn't creative. The other parts, like thinking of the ideas and putting things together with my hands were the creative part. And um, I just started where I could. How long into school did it take before that part of things came into focus for you? Like, okay, this is something that's more approachable or more immediately doable. So I was probably taking classes for three months. And then I got an internship at Creative Recreation, which was a sneaker company back then. And they were a couple months old. They had just started They had a small office in Orange County and it was the two founders and their sales rep, that's it. So I would go in there as much as I could and Rich, the designer, started teaching me how to use Illustrator, which was kind of the biggest solve to my problems because I didn't want to draw. I wasn't really good at it, it took me too long. So he taught me this program that it essentially draws on the computer and it was a lot easier for me. I mean, just through watching him, I learned about um, the production process of shoes and material process, like just all the processes, just watching him do it. So I, I hung around there for a while and I thought that they would hire me, but they didn't. <laughs> and so I kind of reached a dead end. I was like, I don't know what to do. It's like, I I don't need to go to school anymore because I kind of picked up the technical skills that I need. And um, I don't know how else to get a job because who's going to hire me again? Like, who am I? I had saved some money just from working law jobs. And I started doing research into factories that would produce my own designs. So the only factories that would get back to me were the ones in China. And so I moved to China for maybe eight months in Guangzhou. And I made my first collection and then I came back and started selling it. And then I would sell it on MySpace. (laughs) How did you fund the first collection? Through my savings. But you know, back then it wasn't even that much money. I think I had $6,000 or something, which was a lot to me then. But yeah, I I feel like I had $6,000, and with the $6,000, I kind of did everything. 
Was the time in China really instructive to the rest of your career? Yeah, it was life-changing. Well, first, just the fact that I could do it. Like, just getting up and going to the other side of the world alone. Did people in your life think that that was crazy? Yeah, well, I, I had done a lot of service projects before, so it wasn't uncommon for me to, like, go somewhere and serve. In fact, I had gone to China maybe four years prior to that, and I was teaching English at a school in a different city. So I think people didn't really understand what I was doing. They were just like, oh... You know, including my mom. And I didn't tell anybody because I didn't have capacity. It was so scary for me, I couldn't handle other people's scary either. With an apartment filled with boxes of shoes and a MySpace profile, Asani was officially open for business. Using her friends as models and bringing her designs to dance floors around the city, word started to spread and sales started to trickle in, slowly. But it didn't take long for the joy that she got from selling her own products to grant Asani the conviction to bet it all on herself. So you create a line. What exactly does that entail? I think I started off with 12 pairs of shoes, and they were all women's shoes, like heels. Like I said, MySpace was the thing back then, so I would post them on MySpace. And I was also you know, clubbing a lot back then. So I'd go out, my friends would go out, they'd wear them. And then I would do photo shoots with them on the street or wherever, they'd come over and I'd post the pictures on MySpace and then people would contact me on MySpace and then they'd come to my apartment and they'd, you know, I'd sell them the shoes and they'd go home. And then eventually I raised enough money to like start a website and do like a proper photo shoot and... What made you start with heels? I think it was just the age that I was at. I was always kind of a sneakerhead. Not really a sneakerhead, but I always preferred sneakers. And I had worked at Creative Rec and I had seen them do it. And I was just not excited by them at that time. And I feel like I was more in a girly stage. Like I said, I was clubbing a lot. I was going out more. And I saw a hole in the market for heels that were interesting, you know, because sneakers always had such great narratives around them. It was always a story or a colorway that represented something, but I never really saw that reflected in heels. And so I wanted to to sort of do that and bring elements of that or make them more comfortable. So yeah, there was, there was different things at the time where I wanted to sort of like crossbreed. My first goal was just to figure out how to make something because it was so new to me. You know, I had, before that time, I, mean, I was on a very linear sort of like law school route. So the fact that I could think of something that I wanted made and then could actually get it made was mind-blowing to me. I mean, I'm still fascinated by the process of it, but... Uh, so I, I was really hyper-focused on that. That was the most exciting part. And it was so exciting and fulfilling that I thought to myself, like, I don't care what comes after it, I'll figure it out. So I just wanted to make stuff. And I never even really thought of it as a company until I started making enough money for it to be a company. And then people were like, what's your business plan? What's your blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, I, I don't 
Never thought about that. So how did the line start to evolve once you are now selling heels and you have an audience and a website? Where did you start to go creatively? Yeah, so the shoemaking process is really lengthy. It takes like at least three months, I'd say, to get like a shoe to where you want it. You know, doing a couple rounds of samples and then after you do production and it's just a long process. And so in between the concept of the shoe and then the shoe actually arriving, I had a lot of free time. That's when I got into jewelry. And I was like, okay, what can I make? I mean, I, I had a I had a desire to like make things with my hands and to, you know, be more tactile. Like I wanted to learn more processes because the process of shoemaking was so interesting, but I could never do it on my own. It was factories with like hundreds of hands that touch each shoe before it's done. So because I was using Illustrator a lot, I was drawing everything two-dimensionally and I discovered the laser cutter and I was like, okay, how can I design things, like draw things two-dimensionally that are gonna get laser cut and then assemble them in three-dimensional ways. So that kind of became a, a challenge for me and I became really fascinated with that. So I did jewelry and I mean, the shoes were a much slower, slower thing, but the jewelry took off right away. It was like instant, like everybody wanted it, people were interested in it. And um, it was also so exciting to me because you, again, in terms of narratives, you could tell so much more with jewelry than you could with a shoe. At the time for me, I could do more with like different kinds of emblems. And also there was so much more at the time that hadn't been done with jewelry yet. Um, like uh, back then there is a lot of things that you couldn't get that you could get now in terms of like the sizes, di different sizes of earrings or there's a lot of gold earrings that are now available in brass that weren't available in brass then. So you could only get them if you bought the real gold ones and they're really expensive. So they're kind of limited. So there's just more ways to open things up. How would you describe what the women's market was like in that time? Because I know obviously things are very radically different from say like 2005, yeah. just in terms of availability and what people are making. And it seems as though the women's market has changed pretty dramatically. Yeah. So what was the hole in the market that you felt was waiting to be filled? Hmm. I don't know, but well, I, I think it was a combination of price point and material and just thoughtfulness. I think that anytime you wanted something that was really cool, that had a, it like had inspiration behind it, it was either um, a high-end item, which was super designer, which you had to pay a lot for, or it was um, something that you made yourself. And so I think I kind of filled that, filled that market in where I was making things that were really thoughtful, that had stories that resonated with people, but they didn't cost a lot of money. You could still get a custom item or whatever it was, and it was reasonably priced. And, and it was relevant to whatever was happening culturally at the time. 
you know, even now fast fashion is trying to be more culturally relevant, I think. Just even the word streetwear becoming what it is, is that. It's like trying to make all these counterculture movements more mainstream and essentially fast fashion. <laughs> even high fashion, which is kind of the same as fast fashion in a way. So yeah, there was a sweet spot where, you know, I would have like, I don't know, like Rihanna wear a custom necklace of mine where she's wearing like this whole gown, like a, you know, these expensive items, but then she's wearing like my $40 necklace, you know? But it was, to me, that was testament to something else. It's like, it's something that has a soul to it or that's thoughtful. Um, and that there wasn't a lot of that in the market. And we didn't have things like Etsy or, you know, th those marketplaces weren't around. I mean, Instagram wasn't even around. So you didn't have as much access. I feel like women have always been really gifted at spreading word about something they love around the world faster than the internet. I've said that so many times, but it's really true. It was just word of mouth. I mean, crazy things were happening. Like I'd get invited to the White House or I would get invited here or there. And I'm like, how do these people even know about me or know that what I do or, and I'm just making stuff out of plastic, but it was amazing. And at that time, were you handling this all yourself or were you starting to grow a team? I was doing it mostly myself. Um, I think I had one person and then an intern that was just kind of, kind of coming in and helping. But for the first five years, it was like three of us. I could sustain myself right away, um, but I think it was like three or four years before I could properly sustain myself. Because at the beginning it was like, okay, I would order a thousand pairs of shoes and I'd have them in my kitchen. And then I'd be like, all right, if I sell three pairs a week, I can cover my gas, I could cover my apartment, I could cover all my stuff. And that's how I sort of operated. Like I just needed to cover my expenses. But then after I think like three or four years, I had enough where I could live properly. Asani's shoes were really starting to move, but a hang up at customs resulted in an entire season of product being held hostage indefinitely. Frustrated by the legal battles to get her goods back, Asani shifted her focus to a product line she could produce locally, jewelry. I understand there was an incident where you lost an entire shipment of the line yeah. cut to customs. What happened? Yeah, that's when I stopped doing shoes, actually. I, um, I think it was my second or third collection, and... Um, Customs confiscated the entire shipment and they claimed that my factory had used knockoff YKK zippers because YKK is a brand. So I contacted the factory and they were like, no, we bought them from YKK. We have the receipt. And it was just like this whole thing. But the way U.S. Customs is really like the mafia. They're the worst, especially coming into... Los Angeles or Long Beach. And they had set it up in such a way where I forgot the exact details, but if I wanted to 
like go up against them to get the shoes back, I'd have to put up like $30,000 of my own money. And if I lost the case against them, then they would keep the $30,000 and charge me their attorney fees or something like that. It was just some, something that I couldn't risk. Um, doing like I didn't even have 30 grand. Did you have a lawyer at this point? No, no, I didn't have anybody. Yeah, and so I just kind of had to let them keep the shipment. How much was that? It was a lot. It was probably like my entire years because I would do one or one or one and a half collections a year, and so it was my one collection that was meant to allow me to live for the next year, but. Thankfully, um, I had started doing the jewelry before that. Okay. I think it was like seven or eight months before that. And that was bringing in a steady revenue. And so I just put all my focus into the jewelry after that because I, it was going to be the only thing that... <laughs> I mean, when you found this out, did you feel like that this could be the end or... Were you panicked about it? Yeah, I mean, I didn't feel like it was gonna be the end, but it definitely stressed me out. I mean, people who know me know that like 80% of my hair is gray at this point if I don't dye it. And I definitely think a lot of it came in around that time. Just because it was so unfair and you're so helpless against something like that. And I was like, what are you gonna do? You're gonna burn the shoes or like, it was just such a crazy concept to me that they could just do that, you know? And so, um, so yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, always, I'm always the type of person that kind of pushes through, like I, if I need to figure something out, I figure it out. So I wasn't worried about it too much, but um, it just, it kind of crushed me a little bit where I was like, I'm never doing anything in China again. I'm never doing the, like these kinds of things again. And I didn't after that. Like I never did business the same way. Um, and afterwards I talked to friends and they're like, oh, you didn't have a customs agent? And I was like, no, how do I, how was I supposed to know to hire a custom? I didn't even know what a customs agent was. I was just having them shipped on a container. The factory was doing it. So you learn. Stylish yet affordable, Asani's jewelry was an instant hit. Balancing fresh, culturally relevant designs with accessible price points, the line appealed as much to chic teens as it did to celebrities like, say, Rihanna. As Asani's profile continued to rise, Reebok saw the momentum and tapped her to collaborate on a sneaker, bringing her full circle back to the world of footwear. So I was doing the jewelry. The jewelry was doing really well. And it was exploding, but more than anything, it was getting my name out there because, again, the stuff was re very reasonably priced and we were working around the clock. Um, like, you know, so we were, I was sustaining myself for sure, but it's not like I was like counting, you know, counting money or anything. Uh, it was kind of amazing. Um, after the customs thing happened with my shoes, maybe. I don't know the exact timeline, but within maybe a year after that, Reebok reached out to me and asked me if I would be a part of like some shoe collaboration with them. So I guess they had chosen uh, one woman from every continent in the world, and they wanted each of us to interpret their 
version of some shoe that they had. And so I did it, and I was so happy to do it because I was back to shoes, and I never thought I'd do shoes again. And then I don't remember who I talked to or who gave me the idea, but whoever it was was like, you need to buy the shoes and sell them yourself too. Like, just buy some. And I had never sold more than like, you know, like anytime you'd sell something, it'd be like a couple here, a couple there. Or over time, I had never sold out of something. So in my head, I was like, okay, well, how many of these do you think we could buy? And so I was like, I'll buy a hundred. <laughs> And um, so, yeah, my part of my deal with them was that I would, um, they would pay me my design fee and then I would be able to buy from them however many shoes I wanted and that I would be able to sell them on my website a week before they released them to wherever else. It's kind of the beginning of something really incredible. The shoes did really well. We put, we put them up on our website. Um, and at the time, our website didn't have a counter, so there was no like merchandise counter because most of the things that we did were made to order anyway. We came back, we put them on, up on Friday, like praying and hoping that maybe the hundred would sell. And we came back on Monday, and I think we had sold like a few thousand of them online. <laughs> so we called uh, Reebok, and I was like. Uh, we, you know, I thought that there was a mistake. I was like, there's definitely something wrong here. But we called Reebok and thankfully they were able to fulfill the rest of the order. It took them a couple months, but. And did that sort of reignite your interest in footwear, apparel, retail, et cetera? Yeah, it definitely reignited my interest in footwear. I mean, my interest in footwear never left. I think that's why I was so crushed when, you know, what happened was, but. Yeah, no, it definitely, I was like, wait, I could do this through a company? This is great, because then I don't have to worry about shipping or worry about any of the logistical stuff. They can handle that, and I could just worry about the design. So yeah, that was great. And because of how well that shoe did, they ended up signing me to uh, uh, have a shoe deal with them. So for the next three years, maybe it was even more than that. I don't remember, but... Um, I ended up having a working relationship with them and I did about three collections a year for them. When did you decide that it was time to open up a retail brick and mortar? Yeah, so as soon as I got my first, the first like big chunk of money I got was from selling shoes with Reebok. So as soon as I had that chunk of money is when I opened the store. And what was your vision for that? Yeah, it was really just to create a space where I could, um, sort of give background to the all the things that we were making because I felt like website was sort of sterile you couldn't really understand the culture of it or the people behind it or um and I was super hesitant like I said because I didn't I never liked retail but I was like well if we can make this sort of a community spot like a community center where we could have events and where we can display the stuff really cool and and people can come in and know what the stories are behind everything. Um, that's kind of what inspired me. And also, I, I didn't like wholesale. I really didn't like the process of selling to stores. And I, 
never knew which one was like a store I wanted to be in versus I didn't want to be in and I didn't have enough. Yeah, were you, were you doing that, the jewelry at the time? Yeah, we okay. were doing it. And like I said, there was only two of us. And so, and a lot of stores, like I didn't know what stores were in Paris or what stores were. And we had people reaching out to us and then we'd find out like, oh, that's a hair salon <laughs> or that's, you know. And then even when it was a nice store, like sometimes we'd happen to be there and visit and the jewelry would be presented horribly or, you know, it just, they would make mm -hmm. it look cheap or whatever it was. And so I couldn't deal with that aspect of it. And then if, so yeah, I mean, we sold to Karma Loop, which was pretty good back then. That was like the website. And that helped me a lot in terms of volume. Mm -hmm. um, but outside of that, I didn't like selling to stores. So what was the scene in Fairfax like? Obviously, you know, it has become quite an epicenter for all things streetwear and cool. Um, but in 2010, 2011, I would imagine it was slightly different. Mm -hmm. You know, the reason why I wanted to be there was because it was one of the only streets in LA that felt, still felt like LA. You know, growing up here, being born here, there isn't like, when you go to New York, there is, it like feels like New York, or there are certain places you go and it just like really feels like that. And um, Fairfax was sort of one of those untouched streets where it had, it had that cool hybrid of things that were so LA that had kind of been mulled over in other areas already. It still is a very like Hasidic Jewish neighborhood. So, you know, there's a synagogue on the corner. There's a bunch of Jewish grocery stores and different sorts of businesses. And then you had Supreme, Diamond, but then the Odd Future kids got there and I knew a bunch of them. And then they kind of brought a different sort of energy to the block. And so I was looking, I was kind of loosely looking for a store and the store that was two doors down from them had been Turntable Lab, which had sadly closed at the time and was available for lease. So I looked into it and it was literally the first place I looked at. And I think we signed the lease like three months later. Having now been the proprietor of a retail establishment for about a decade, have you come around or learned to enjoy the retail side of things at all? Yeah, there's parts of it I enjoy. There's definitely parts of it I enjoy and parts of it I still don't. I love being there. And then I, I love, I okay, I'll tell you the things that I don't like. The things that I don't like are... I think the management aspect of it is difficult for me just because I, I'm more of a creative. And so um, getting into the weeds of like how it runs, who runs it, that sort of thing is really difficult for me because I always have an idea for how it should be, but it's really difficult to execute because you have to find the right people. You know, even in terms of my, the, the girls that work in the shop, like I want them to be a certain way and to check off certain boxes and it's not always easy to find people like that and spending my time trying to do that as opposed to designing something is hard for me. Okay. So if that was my only job, it would be great. But since I have other things to do, it it's like a lot to manage. Um, and then just, 
like housekeeping things, like things that just the administration. Uh, yeah, of the administration of it is is not fun, but everything else is. Okay. You know, I love hosting people there. Does it give you a different vantage on the consumer to like be able to watch them? look at the racks and, yeah. you know, to talk about things and that kind of stuff. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's everything. I'd much rather sell directly to the people that want to buy from our stuff than not. I mean, it's been so confirming and um, surprising in so many ways. Like, we've had people like Susan Sarandon is like a regular shopper. <laughs> it's like crazy, right? Like, who would have ever thought... But then it's so insightful for us because we're like, oh, our, our customer is actually so much more than we thought it was. And so it just opens us up. It allows us to be more free to cater to more people. It allows us to see what's important, what's not. It's everything. With her jewelry line growing by the day and her Reebok collaboration and its accompanying apparel making waves in boutiques across the country, Asani knew a full clothing line had to come next. Have you ever had a big idea but lacked the tools to implement it? Look no further than Shopify. Shopify is the brand that powers all your favorite clothing, beauty, and sneaker brands and offers the best-in-class commerce tools to allow you to sell online, in person, and on all major social platforms. Shopify fuels millions of entrepreneurs and turns ambition into action. Check out shopify.com slash idea to learn more. Now back to the story. So how did you sort of pivot back into the apparel side of things from the jewelry? So when I was at Reebok, uh, after two years, I think they let me do apparel. They were like, okay, we can add apparel to the collection. Because I was like, we're doing these shoes, but I want the whole fit. You know, because a lot of times the thing was that people don't know how to wear the shoes or don't know what to wear them with, especially since sometimes I'd choose patterns that maybe people didn't thought were super loud or whatever it was. And so I started making full outfits for them and that really excited me because I was like, oh, this is so cool. We could we can complete the look. So even with other things that I made, the jewelry, the earrings, whatever, you could present the whole girl or, you know, the whole look versus just like one aspect of it. And then we started making apparel ourselves after that and it was really difficult. It's just so challenging because body types are different, especially women. And then we were making everything in LA, which was super challenging because it's really expensive. And you have to source every single thing, every zipper, button, pull, everything. Whereas when I was working with other companies, they were doing mostly everything overseas. And you would really just like show them a picture and they would find it in a day for you versus us having to drive all around downtown and call like 86 million people to figure out like where we can get this specific type of snap from. <laughs> were there mishaps and things that did not come out how you wanted them all to? All the time. That was the other thing. It was like all the time there would be mistakes like... We would get stuff, Garmin dyed, and it was supposed to be one color, and it would come out a completely different color. We'd want it tie-dyed in this way, and they would do it another way, or 
they'd use the wrong fabric for something. I mean, it was so many, so many things where we would get something screen printed and they would do it. It's just all the time there's a lot of mishaps. And how was the reception or the appetite from the audience? You know, I think it was growing. We were experimenting a lot. So say we would put out like 10 items and two of them would sell out right away and people would be super excited about them and then the other eight would just sit there for months before we could move anything. And in a lot of ways it's still like that, but I think that we've honed in a little bit more about what you know, our customer wants. And so there are certain things we're just like, that's really cool, but it's not really us. So we just don't bother with it anymore. As you are now transitioning, trying to figure out this new apparel line as well, while obviously still sustaining um, the jewelry that's keeping the lights on, are you feeling enthusiastic or anxious or what was your general mood? I mean, it's so crazy because it's almost like I woke up and 10 years had passed. Like I just sort of like kept my head down and worked the whole time. I was like, we have to make this, we have to figure it out, we have to make it work. So I think I felt all the emotions all the time, but I feel like right before, like a year before the pandemic happened, I started to feel like maybe ownership wasn't as much as I thought it was. You know, like prior to that, I really wanted to build this empire and I was thinking that I wanted to do it on my own. And I think I, I was like, you know, it would actually be a lot better if I allowed somebody to invest and I received that kind of strategic support. Like I would do anything for support. Like I had just sort of gotten to that point. And I, I kind of let go of the idea that I would have to own the whole thing because it was like, well, either I'm going to own the whole thing and it's going to take me forever and I'm going to kill myself or I could have help and not own the, own the whole thing and that's fine. But I don't know why it took me so long to get there. So up until that point, you're basically self-funding and just reinvesting profits. Yeah. Taking a little bit off the table for yourself to live and yeah. pay your staff, but it is, you're in the virtuous cycle, right? Yeah. Yeah. Barely taking, like I was taking money out to pay for my mortgage and my food, but I wasn't, I wasn't really even taking any money for myself. I was more so like I, occasionally I would do collaborations or I'd take on design projects that paid me and that's really how I was making my money or I would take that and reinvest it. And then when Instagram came around and this concept of ads and like paid things came, I would, t it kind of felt like the equivalent of stripping to get yourself through college. <laughs> <laughs> but I was like, okay, I guess I'll do this, do this ad or whatever. Um, as long as it was something that was like-minded, it didn't, you know, compromise my integrity too much. I would do it and then I would invest that into the business or pay whoever I needed to pay to get whatever done. You know, we would go through stages of success or not, but to keep even, detaching from anything material was big for me because the, 
the thing is, it's never been about money anyway. Like, I've never done it to make money. I always just felt like as long as I'm supported by it, as long as I could keep doing it, um, I'm fine. And of course, I wanted to make money. And because the only way that I could make more stuff is if I made more money. And it would really frustrate me that I could only make like four things this season because I didn't have enough money to make 10, you know? Um, but I just kind of, I don't know. I just kind of did everything that I could. And I felt like I couldn't do more than that. But I went through all the highs and lows for sure. I don't know. It's were, a the, good were there ever moments that you thought about hanging it up or moving in a different direction? No, because I don't know what else I'd do. <laughs> Feel you. I don't. I don't know how to really do anything else. I mean, it's not that I don't know how I could really do anything. I just don't love anything else. Yeah. Like it. Like I would wake up and do it for free every day. So. The fact that I'm getting anything from it is huge, you know? But I have, you know, o over time that, that that's changed just because you realize different ways that you could do the same thing and make money. Mm -hmm. And so you're tempted by that or you're like, wait, maybe I'm, I'm not working like how they say work smarter, not harder. I feel like I took a real like immigrant mentality towards it and I just sort of did what my parents did and just worked really hard when I didn't have to work that hard. And now I'm realizing after seeing what I've seen and after doing all the things that I've done, I've realized that, oh, there's actually a lot, there's smarter ways to do this and I just kind of did it the hard way, but just because nobody had showed me any other way. The need to bring on a strategic partner was now unavoidable, but finding the right investor who believed in both Asani and the brand was crucial. As the company scaled, new opportunities presented themselves, but growing pains persisted. From highs, like designing the merch for a Red Hot Chili Peppers tour, to lows, like having her supply chain crippled by COVID, success continued to come, but it never came easy. So... What is that process like, deciding right before the pandemic to take on investment? Were you fielding inbound requests from people or did, was this something that you went out and solicited? Yeah, so over, over the years I had received requests and I was just very arrogant about it. I was like, nope, no, I don't wanna, you know. And then by the time I was ready for it, it was something that I had to solicit because nothing was around at that time. And it was really difficult because it had become a thing, right, with, with investing in companies. And it reminded me of when I had started, when people are like, well, do you have your business plan? And I was like, no. <laughs> what does a business plan look like? And, um, you know, they wanted a deck and they wanted to know my projections. And, and those are things that I had never really done so it was kind of foreign to me. So I started to put those kinds of things together to the best of my ability. 
And then I just started meeting with people and talking with people. And yeah, I was introduced to this one, this one guy and he owned factories. Actually, he owns like clothing manufacturing factories. And that was kind of the strategic type of partner that I wanted because I really wanted help with production. I didn't just want money because you could kind of take money from anywhere, but I started learning about all the different types of investors that you could take on. And I didn't want somebody that had just given me money and then was immediately looking for a return on their money. I wanted somebody that believed in me and that saw what I was trying to do and maybe had something else to offer. And so the investor that I ended up taking on was the first and only one that I met with that didn't come in and try to tell me all the things that I needed to change about the business or didn't come and like try to reinvent my business, but instead was like, I love what you're doing. And, you know, like really got it and was like, I just want to empower what you're doing. And that was huge to me because it made me feel like I had spent all these years building a community really that to me was super important. And I had built all this kind of cultural capital for lack of a better word, like my relationships to me are everything. Um, It's not just about the product, but you know, it's like who we've worked with, how we've worked, um, who we've hired, everything. And he really got that. And so I ended up taking him on as an investor and he invested money in the business and then also took over um, all the manufacturing, which allowed me to start being able to make clothing in a different way than I had done before. We were making everything locally. We could only make what we could find. So if there was something that we couldn't source in LA, we couldn't make it. Okay. So if we wanted to make Gore-Tex and we couldn't find Gore-Tex fabric or, you know, it was just certain things like we couldn't make something uh, like an all over print unless it was a certain kind of sublimation, which kind of felt cheap or, you know, there's all these limitations in terms of processes that he had access to that we didn't. And I loved his story. He had started his own factories and he came from nothing and he had sort of built it like a very self-made person. So I don't know, there's certain things about him that I really respected and that I kind of saw eye to eye on. I would imagine when someone invests you and and they would hash out some sort of like more medium term or long term vision for where you want to go with the brand. And what did that look like and how much of it have you achieved? Yeah. Well, he's only been my investor for the last two years and it's taken a lot of turns because I think I've changed in a lot of ways in terms of what my goals were. Like I said, initially, I just sort of wanted to grow the business. And then the pandemic happened and I changed my idea about what growth looked like. So, you know, I I think that our vision is still the same. I think that if I am to really grow, we'll probably need to do another round of investment at some point. This isn't the be all end all. But for now, I feel like we're on track. And so like that allowed me 
to do like my husband's band, like the Chili Peppers went on a world, or are in, in the process of doing a world tour. And it's a pretty big tour for them because they're doing stadiums for the first time globally, which means like 80,000 people a night. And they've never had tour merch that they've liked before. You know, for the last, I don't know how long, they've just had a merch company that's just sort of turned out generic merch for them. And so we got to sort of take over their entire merch business, which was huge. Like, that's it's like literally starting another company, and I would have never been able to do that had he not been able to help me with the production and, you know, we would have never been able to hit those price points, like making really good quality band shirts and being able to sell them for the prices we're selling them at at the stadiums unless I had him as a partner. Because what the merch companies are doing is that they're just buying like the cheapest thing and then selling it for the most. Um, so that was really exciting and, and cool, like just being able to do things like that, which weren't part of the plan per se, but it's a process of the growth and it's like, hmm, you know, maybe we could do more things like this that, you know, if it feels authentic and if it resonates with us and it makes sense, it's a part of our business we could grow that we didn't anticipate. How did the pandemic impact the business? A lot of people wanted sweatsuits. Like we just pivoted towards making more, we were already making more comfortable clothes, but a lot of the clothing companies like, people that um, are in my industry, especially in the streetwear world, I felt like did really well during the pandemic. Like we were all doing numbers that were shocking, um, but all our supply chains were messed up. So it's like there is a demand, but our factories were shutting down or there was a shortage of cotton for a while. So that really affected things. And then also in terms of labor, like I initially, I tried to keep on as many employees that I can. And we, I think we kept everybody on for the first four months. And then afterwards I, I had to start laying people off. And then we had a store in New York that we had to shut down because we were just paying rent. And so it was definitely, I think it, it halted our growth in a certain kind of way. You know, everything just started changing. So it really refocused everything for us because we're like, well, we can't make as much as we want. So if we can only make certain things, what would they be? And who, like what kind of people do we wanna work with? Who are we gonna hire? What roles are most important? And, and for me, it also, uh, like, like I said before that, I, had pl I was planning on growing the business. And after paring it down to working again, like going back to an environment where it was like me and three people again, I really enjoyed it. And so I was like, after the pandemic stopped, I was like, I don't really want to hire more people. So I was like, how can we run the business and still grow, but work with like a really small but powerful team? Um, so that's been probably the biggest change is not having like a whole office of people, but having like a really tight crew. While Reebok had allowed Asani to take full creative control of her designs, working with Nike introduced certain creative constraints that would end up spurring new ways of thinking and help take Asani's design aspirations to the next level. 
you know, I was editor-in-chief of Complex for a while, and your Jordan collab was something that definitely landed on my radar, even as a men's shoe enthusiast. How did that come together, and what is the nature of that relationship? Yeah, so I um, was friends with some of the guys that worked at Jordan, mainly Frank Cooker. And um, Frank and uh, Frank had followed my work since Reebok. Okay. And then he used to work at Wish in Atlanta, which is a sneaker store, and so I knew him from that. And um, as soon as my Reebok deal ended, I didn't want to re-sign the deal just because I didn't feel like there was any room for me to grow there. And I was really interested. I mean, my goal had always been to do something with Jordan. Yeah. I mean, yes, I think that goes for everybody yeah. in this space. <laughs> Around that time, I think I ran into Frank and, and he was like, let me know when you're done with your contract. And I was like, why? And he, he had moved over to Nike and he was working there. I didn't know he was working there. And I was like, well, actually my contract just ended. So I was like, I'm free. I was like, in a couple months, my, um, my non-compete is over and I'm free. And so we kind of stayed in touch and he brought me in, essentially. Did you know what, what your, your first Jordan was gonna look like in your head before? No, and to be honest, Jordan and Nike, I feel like run super tight. I think that's why they've had so much success is that they have, uh, for the most part, they have a very strong identity. I mean, everything at Jordan revolves around Michael Jordan and that DNA. And so they're very particular about what they let you do and what they don't let you do. You know, there's certain things that just don't fit in with their culture or whatever. Um, whereas Reebok was struggling with that when I was there. You know, they were very confused. Like they were trying to reinvent their logo at the time. And I was like, what are you doing? This is the iconic logo. You can't change this. Nobody wants a new logo. <laughs> um, but. But it was also amazing because they'd let me do whatever I wanted. I was like, I want the pumps. And they're like, I was like, I want to do this, this and that. And they would just, they gave me access to everything in their catalog. And so that was really amazing that I got to work in that way. But then going to Jordan, it was very different. It was like, well, here's your toolbox. And <laughs> here are the things that could fit. And this is how it fits in with what we're doing right now. So, um, so no, I had no idea. And we actually went through a number of things before um, Frank really advocated for me to be able to do, to work on the ones. Was it um, overwhelming when it went to market? No, because it was such a long process. And this is usually the case. Because, um, like I was saying, it took me a long time to make shoes. And with a company like that, you have even more things that you need to go through. So I, I was working on them for a really long time before they finally came out. And, um, and what happened was that I had kind of like discovered lenticular fabric. And um, I was really inspired by Hank Willis Thomas and his artwork. He makes these lenticular prints. We actually have one in the store. And I really wanted to make a lenticular shoe and I had an idea for it and I was set on the idea and it was the only thing that I wanted to do. 
And we worked on that shoe for over a year and they just couldn't source the, the fabric. They couldn't get, like, they kept getting different qualities of lenticular, but it just wasn't right. And um, Gimo, who was the head at the time, called me and he was like, hey, if we don't get this design in by Friday, then you're not gonna have a shoe. And it was Wednesday or Tuesday or something. So they flew me to Portland the next morning. I literally got on the first flight and I like literally just went into the materials library and just worked all day on the shoe and came up with something at the end of the day. So that shoe was designed in a day. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. So when it came out, it was kind of like relief, but it was also not what I had invested the last year trying to make happen. <laughs> so it was a little bit of both, but I mean, of course I was happy with it. Last year, you were announced as the creative director for women's at Foot Locker. Mm -hmm. How did that opportunity come to you and what has the experience been like? Well, they had created the role for me, which was kind of cool. So they called me and they pitched it to me. And it was pretty timely, actually, because I was thinking more so. I had just started thinking that I'd be ready to take on a role like that in addition to whatever I was doing. Like I said, I had just taken on the investor, so I had felt all this new sort of creative energy that I had. So I felt like I could take it on. And it sounded like a really cool opportunity. I've always wanted to work with a company that dealt more so with a mass market um, versus a lot of the companies I had worked with prior where like the Jordans, for example, of course I love them, but they only made a certain amount. And for the next like three years, you're just gonna get harassed because you didn't make enough. And so it was really cool to, to work with a company who's whole thing was like making something for everyone, you know? I didn't realize at the time, but Foot Locker's never made their own product. They've always carried other people's product. They've always solely been a, a retailer. And so we've sort of taught them the whole manufacturing process, which has been crazy, but really rewarding. And it's cool because now they make all their own, like they do all, all the stuff that they do with us and hopefully it'll help them grow their business. So yeah, what exactly are your responsibilities? I do seasonal collections every year with them for three years. And um, basically everything that moves around that. So for any kind of visual identity, just all the creative around all the stuff that goes into the store. And how do you manage the juggling between your own brand and <laughs> their brand? As I it's imagine- It's a lot. They, yes. Yeah, it's a lot. I took on way too much. <laughs> well, what I didn't realize, I was like, oh, okay, we do two or three collections a year, that's no problem. But what I didn't realize is that they're, because they were new at, manufacturing, the timelines were even longer because it would have to go through so many processes. So it means we have to start earlier. So I think during the pandemic last year, I think I did a collection every month for like seven months or something. Every single month we had to design a completely new collection, which was really, really hard. 
because I'm not that kind of designer. You know, I take my time, I do a lot of research, I have, I have a process. And with my own collection, you know, we do two collections a year. You know, we do spring, summer, fall, winter. And then we'll do collaborations and like little specialty things in between. But I had never worked that hard before in terms of, you know, just finding enough inspiration. Especially, it was especially tricky because I wasn't inspired during the pandemic. You know, it's like nobody's wearing anything. Like I know I was wearing the same thing every other day. And, um, and it was also, there was this feeling of like doom and gloom in a lot of ways. You know, you weren't particularly in a joyful mood, but it was actually kind of a blessing because I think it pulled me out of that and really helped me zone into a different kind of world and, and produce what we needed to produce. When you design for them, you're obviously aiming for a much more mass audience. They have, you know, hundreds and hundreds of stores across the country. Yeah. Whereas with your own brand, it's more of a boutique. Do you think about it creatively differently when you're in the design process? You know, it's difficult for me to. I try to because I feel like I'm supposed to, but it's really difficult. So it's not like if I get inspiration about something, it's not like I could think to myself like, oh, I'm going to save this for the more special thing. Like if I move to do it, I just have to kind of do it. But I do, uh, where, where it comes into play a lot is with price point considerations. You know, it's like being able to hit a certain price point so that people, you know, it could be a different kind of market that could afford things that are just as special, but that, you know, maybe don't know about my brand or don't want to spend the extra however much. Does the pressure around like sell through numbers and that kind of thing inform any of your decisions? And also, do you feel like you're learning new or different things by servicing that sort of broad of a market? Yeah, I've definitely learned a lot through servicing that kind of market. I mean, it's the same, it's the equivalent to having your own store and seeing who your customer is and what they're into. So I feel like what Foot Locker did was just introduce me to who my customer already was that and we just didn't know about each other. So it kind of helped me grow in that way, which was amazing, because I was like, oh wait, there's more of us um, in these ways. So it, it's almost like my existing person that just didn't know about me and I didn't know about them. In terms of me thinking about things from a financial perspective, of course, it, it's kind of difficult not to. I mean, there'll be times where with, with Depending on what you're making, you have more freedom. So when I make jewelry, because I'm making it myself and I can make as many as I want, there isn't a huge, there isn't a lot of pressure because I don't have to worry about inventory and prices. And so there's so many times, I can't tell you how many times where I'd make something and it would sit on the shelf or just sit on my website for like a year and then out of nowhere, a year later, all of a sudden, it's the only thing that people want to buy and we can't keep enough of it in stock. Or somebody notable will wear it and the same kind of thing. 
So it, we, we, I kind of had more freedom with something like the jewelry to explore more and give it a life. Whereas with clothing, everything is so, so fast. And you can't, if you make it this year, you can't sell it next year. You can barely sell it next season. So you do think about it differently. There's a lot more pressure. So if, if you make a certain kind of thing, even if I think it's the most brilliant thing, and oftentimes the things that I make that I think are the best things are the ones that don't sell, <laughs> then I just don't make them anymore. Or I wait and I change them or I try to make them in different ways where people might understand or might wear them different. So we are now approaching the, the latter half of 2022. Um, as you think about the business um, and next year and the years to come, what are the goals that you have set for yourself? I've been in such a big state of limbo in the last, well, for the last year, I've really questioned like I said, how I've been working this whole time and if I'm actually working smarter versus harder. And I'm trying to figure out the things that I love doing the most and how to do them better or different. And I feel like I'm in a lot of ways, I'm just going back to the core of things that I really love. And one of them is sort of the justice, justice aspect of things. Um, so much of what I've done has become, has been because of like my voice or like the voice that we put into the things that we make. And so figuring out how to do that better, I think is one of my goals is just like, how can we have products that um, are more meaningful or purposeful? Like they could still be exactly what they are, but how can we, like put these little messages or whatever it is that we do and have them have bigger impacts in the world. So that that's definitely one of my goals. Um, understanding sustainability is a big goal of mine because it's such a big conversation and, and I'm trying to educate myself on it, but it's a big education to be had. And I think the other thing is really sort of figuring out women's sports and the sports market more because it's one of those things that I've always been really interested in, just sport in general. But, um, you know, I love basketball and I love women's basketball. And I feel like there's so much inequality there in terms, like across the board, in terms of everything that has to do with the sport. And I feel like I'm trying to find my place in how I can help elevate it in whatever way I can. And obviously I think that that's gonna probably be through product because even the women's product is inferior in the market. And so, yeah, just kind of learning more about that and finding where I fit in there because I just love it so much. Melody Asani's story is a testament to how important it is to fundamentally love your product and love your pursuit. Because, as she has learned over and over again, it never gets easier. Asani has achieved continued and growing success in a fickle marketplace. But her love of her brand and her love for its audience has dwarfed the numerous challenges business has tossed in her path. 
And that commitment to problem solving and openness to pivot has enabled her to roll with the punches and constantly organically elevate her brand. Big thanks to our sponsors at Shopify. If you're looking to start your own online store, check out shopify.com ideas and become your own boss today. Thank you for tuning in to the Idea Generation Podcast. See you next week. 